Rome had a lot of emperors, but who were the worst? Join me and guest LJ Trafford as we discuss three possible candidates on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome, my name's Neil and in this episode I welcome back the author LJ Trafford to talk about some of Rome's worst emperors. LJ has recently released a book all about just that. It's titled Ancient Rome's Worst Emperors and I picked out a selection of three emperors from it who we discuss and we even get the chance at the end to answer some questions which have been kindly sent in. If you're not familiar with LJ or her books, well, LJ is a writer of both fiction and non-fiction about ancient Rome. In fiction, she has tackled 69 CE, the year of the four emperors, in her four-book series Palatine, Galba's Men, Otho's Regret and Vitellius's Feast. As well as writing short stories covering the downfall of arch-villain Sejanus, the marriage of Emperor Nero to wife number three Statilia Messalina and a tale involving deadly palace politics, a kidnapping and an improbably escaped hippo called Help, one of our eunuchs is missing. In non-fiction, she is the author of How to Survive in Ancient Rome, a travel guide for the discerning tourists to Rome in the year 95 CE, and has tackled the troubling, difficult, but never less than fascinating subject of sex in her book Sex and Sexuality in Ancient Rome. Her latest book is called Ancient Rome's Worst Emperors. As I mentioned, LJ has been on the podcast to talk about her books. There's an episode where we chat about how to survive in ancient Rome and another on sex and sexuality in ancient Rome. If you haven't done so already, go have a listen. They're really fun and interesting discussions. Just a couple of things to mention before you get to the chat. Firstly, I received a copy of this book. I'll always be open about that kind of thing. It doesn't affect my opinion of it and you'll hear me recommending it. I think it's a really good read. In fact, I wouldn't have an episode with a book which I wouldn't either buy myself, which is actually more often the case, or recommend. And believe it or not, I do get a fair few offers. And just to clarify on a wider point, my podcast is a hobby. I don't make any money from it. For example, those ads I sometimes feature are swaps that I've done with other podcasters, or I've provided the ad because I think there's a particular content maker or resource which might be of interest to you. You know, get word round, that kind of a thing. That segues nicely to the standard appeal for reviews and ratings. Please do this. I don't have a budget for ads or marketing. If you give the podcast a rating on, say, Apple or Spotify, it makes it more visible to other people through the magical recommend algorithms. On Spotify, you can actually go one step extra and review each individual episode. You can find me on X, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube as Ancient Blogger, with this podcast as at Hound Ancient on X as well. And of course, there's my website, ancientblogger.com. I'd be very interested to hear what your thoughts were on my selections and, you know, just any feedback that you have. Finally, just be aware that there's mention of death, suicide and general nastiness in this episode. But I suspect you'd expect this given the nature of what we're talking about. But, you know, I thought it worth just flagging for you. Right then, here's our chat. LJ as ever was absolutely fantastic. So I really hope that you enjoy it. LJ, three's a charm, as they say. It's your third time actually coming on here. So welcome and thanks. No, it's fine. <laughs> We're here to talk about your book, Rome's Worst Emperors, and discuss three examples which I selected. But before we get to them, how did you go about this task exactly? Because it's a very difficult one. How did you go about it? What were the metrics that you used? Well, I really got, as in with previous um, my previous two nonfiction books, it was a title that I was given to write. Mm -hmm. So I've written two previous nonfiction for um, Pen and Sword, which was Sex and Sexuality in Ancient Rome and How to Survive in Ancient Rome. In both those cases, they gave me a title and they gave me a book brief, which told me exactly what I had to write, what you know topics I had to cover. And um, with this one, they just gave me the title, Ancient Rome's Worst Emperors, and said, go off and write the book brief yourself. Um, so I went off and I wrote a kind of brief about what I thought I was going to write about, which um, subsequently... I've looked at and it bears no resemblance to the finished <laughs> book at all because my original idea was I was also going to include oh, some of ancient Rome's worst empresses as well, you know, oh, okay. a bit of variety, you know, even out the kind of gender balance of evilness. <laughs> and I was going to have kind of themed chapters on kind of like the Praetorian Guard because they yeah. pop up a lot yeah. in kind of worst emperor's rule. So I had all these grand plans. 
And then I realized just how big a task I'd set myself. Yeah. And that those kind of things really, I really didn't have space to include those kind of things because I have 85,000 words. And I'd set myself like all of Roman history from Augustus up to the fall of the West and kind of, is it 476 with Honorius? And that's a huge, huge amount of time to set yeah. myself. Um, and my metrics, I started off thinking I was going to choose one emperor, one worst emperor from each dynasty. Hmm. And then again, that proved to be far too big a job because there's quite a lot of dynasties and quite a mm. lot of emperors. And again, that was just too much to include. So then I went back to the drawing board again and I thought, okay, I'm just going to choose a selection who, who I think worst emperors and I'm going to judge it. And I'm going to judge it by Augustus, who's Rome's first emperor. Oh, okay. Who, um, very handily writes a kind of, a kind of summary of his life, the Res Gestae, which tells you all the brilliant things he did. Um, and it's all about him. Barely anybody else gets a mention in it. It's, I did this <laughs> and I did that. Yeah. And that seemed like quite a good blueprint of what a good emperor should be. Mm. A good emperor should, you know, fight battles and win. They should build great kind of palaces. They should be doing stuff. Um, so that seemed something that I could compare who follows Augustus with. See, who didn't quite, didn't quite measure up to the mark wasn't quite as good. And the other metrics which kind of helped me was Suetonius, who writes a biography of the first 12 emperors. Mm. Um, he very handily splits his kind of biographies into their good deeds and their bad deeds, which is really handy for me because then that gave me another kind of set of metrics that I could compare with. Mm. I could say, well, if Suetonius thinks this is bad behaviour, who you know, who's the worst I can find who matches up to that kind of behaviour? Um, so I kind of started with that, with starting what a good emperor was looking at Augustus. And then kind of moving it on from there to try and choose some worst ones. Um, but again, I, it's a bit kind of random in that I wanted to show kind of a wide range of what yeah. a worst emperor could be. I didn't want to just do all the ones everybody's heard of and just, you know, Caligula, Nero, et cetera, mm. and sexual depravity all over the place, um, orgies, all that kind of stuff. I wanted a, I wanted a kind of variety of ways in which you could be worse, you know, kind of people who've just been a bit over promoted. Yeah. People who found themselves in the job who just aren't up to the up to the task, and I wanted that that kind of variety. So it's not you know because even I get even I who written many books about kind of sexuality get a bit tired of all the sexual depravity. You want to write about something else for a bit mm. every now and then, anyway. <laughs> well, I remember you coming on and the two books that you spoke about earlier. You came on and spoke about how to how to survive in ancient Rome and sex and sexuality in ancient Rome, and they were both very popular episodes. And I. I think the way you've approached it is, it's a very good way uh, because there is, I don't think, one particular route to answering that question. It's a pub question. It's really a question about a question. You know, how do you go about assessing emperors and understanding them? I like the point you make about emperors sometimes being overpromoted, the sort of Peter principle or pun intended, the princeps principle. And there's certainly one of those that we'll deal with. I really enjoyed the book. I've not read all of it so far. And I, I read around because I wanted to get a good idea of who I wanted to select. And my first thought was I want to choose someone from each era, as it were, of the, em of the empire. What this book did, though, and this is to its credit, is it, it moved me north of the second century AD, which generally speaking, for those who have listened to my podcast, I don't tend to go north of. I get a nosebleed. It's something that when I was at, at university and afterwards at doing my master's, I never really broke through that post-Hadrian era. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out the reason most people don't kind of go north of the second century is there's not as many sources yeah, um, going yeah. forward. Okay, so it's, it's more difficult to kind of find out about those emperors. And I, I mean, I certainly learned loads um, writing this book because it was loads I hadn't even heard of that are kind of going through, especially in the kind of third century when you get emperor after emperor after emperor and they last last just a few months. So, yeah, it was an education for, for me as well in kind of learning of some new things. But we're going to start with an emperor from the period that I'm familiar with, and one I imagine would, would appear on most people's, say, top three, probably top five. He was the third Roman emperor, and though his reign was short, and I'll come to that later, it was certainly eventful. We'll start then with Caligula. LJ, perhaps you can enlighten us and start with exactly how he became emperor and what his background was. Yeah, so Caligula is the, um, as you say, he's the third emperor of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, which starts with Augustus, who's the first one, and then continues with 
Augustus' stepson Tiberius. And the problem they had in that kind of first instance was that Augustus, although we call him kind of Rome's first emperor, he never really held that title because that title didn't really exist. And there was no post of emperor. And what he had was a kind of collection of powers that he'd accumulated and been granted that allowed him to act as he did, act as an emperor. But there was no role. So the first big test of it was, if there's no job of emperor, how do you hand it over to a successor? Mm. And it's kind of to Tiberius's kind of credit that the thing, this thing, this new role of emperor keeps going for the next four centuries um, because it could so easily have kind of crumbled. But he's just competent enough to kind of keep it going and keep it running. And Tiberius rules for, um, I think it's 24 years. He has a good long reign. At the end of Tiberius's reign, there was certainly a very full treasury, um, yeah. but there was a very lot of unhappy people. He was an elderly man. He'd kind of given up on Rome. He'd left Rome 10 years previously to retire to the island of Capri, where he stayed. So the people of Rome hadn't seen him for a good decade. And he'd left Rome in charge of his Praetorian prefect, a man by the name of Sejanus, who's kind of the arch villain of kind of history. And yeah. Sejanus himself had kind of delusions of power, whether he wanted to be emperor or whether he wanted to get closer to power, we don't know. He's had an affair with um, Tiberius's um, daughter-in-law, um, Lavilia, and we think maybe he wanted to act as regent to Tiberius's grandson. Right. And he went about kind of accumulating power by knocking off and bumping off any kind of people who were in his way. And in his way was a lady called Agrippina, who was Caligula's mother, mm-hmm. who was a, a granddaughter of Augusta, so Augustus rather, so she had a very close link and she was very popular with the people. Um, she's married to Germanicus, who was a war hero. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she had a good selection of sons. She had three sons and a collection of three daughters. So she had a good number of heirs who were in the way. And um, Sejanus slowly set about kind of bumping them off one by one, setting them up. And uh, they, Agrippina ended up being kind of exiled and she had a horrible exile. Um, she was beaten yeah. so badly by the guards that she lost an eye. Caligula's brother was starved to death and he was so hungry, he ate the kind of innards of his own mattress in desperation. And so they were slowly getting bumped off and bumped off one by one. And there was just Caligula left in the way. And it was um, Caligula's grandmother, Antonia, who finally got the news to kind of Tiberius of what Sejanus was doing. And Sejanus kind of fell from power very, very quickly. And then all there was left in the succession was Caligula. So he's the last one left. So he's had quite a rough childhood. He sat there yeah. and he's watched his, kind of his mother and his brothers being bumped off. His father died very mysteriously in Syria. There was um, kind of rumours that he'd been poisoned mm. and been murdered. Um, so he's grown up in this kind of atmosphere of fear. And even more fear is when Tiberius, you know, invites him to come to Capri with him, you know, to act as his successor, you know, his proven heir. So he's actually, you know, stuck on a line with the man who's responsible for killing his family. Yeah. And he's got to keep a kind of he's got to keep a kind of straight face almost. He's got to suck up to Tiberius despite how he might personally feel about him. And you can imagine the kind of pressure on a kind of very young man mm. having to do that. So he yeah, he's the heir because there's not really anybody else left. And he's only I think he's twenty five years old when Tiberius dies, and then he's thrust into the kind of limelight as this very young emperor. And um, the people are delighted because they haven't seen Tiberius for years. He was an old man. He was cruel. They didn't like him. And yeah. they've got this kind of young man coming in who's the son of a war hero and the Agrippina who they loved. And, you know, he starts off his reign in a very good stead. They they adore him. He, you know, as he comes into Rome, they call him, you know, their chickling, their duck, their darling. <laughs> He's got a good way in. Mm. I guess one thing should be mentioned is, Unlike Tiberius, who kind of worked for Augustus and undertaken lots of public roles, he'd fought in the military in various campaigns. He had a lot of experience. He came to be emperor in his 50s. You know, Caligula was 25. He hasn't got any of that experience. He hasn't served in the army. He hasn't had any public roles. He's coming in as a kind of blank slate Mm. with really not the experience. And But as we say, Tiberius left him a lot of money. um, So he's got a good good start, which um, quickly crumbles. <laughs> in essence, very quickly. I think that's a really, really good summary you give of him. And I think it is important as well, because though we are ultimately placing a great deal of judgment on some of these individuals, this, the situations in which they grew up and how it must have affected them is something you have to consider. And Caligula, it's difficult at points to feel sorry for him, but I, I do have a very big soft spot generally for people. And I often think with Caligula, he had 
a very tough time of it. But as you say, he starts off well, or it seems that he starts off well, and then it changes. And there's a great line, and I think it's Suetonius, where he covers basically Germanicus and says how great his dad was for most of for the early part of his coverage of, of Caligula. And then he says, that was for the man, now I must turn to the monster, which is a great line. Oh, it's a, it's a piffy one line. Yeah. yeah there, there's so much for the man, history must do with the monster. What were the changes? What were the things that he did which moved him away from being that you know, highly considered, liked, almost loved new emperor? Yeah, I mean, the first, it, it comes sort of two years into his reign. So he has two years where he does like the Augustus blueprint of doing all good stuff. He builds stuff. He throws fantastic games for the people. He's very generous. He gives them hands out money to the people. Mm. He's kind to the army. He's great to the Senate. You know, he promises the senators these are the end of the dark days of Tiberius because under Tiberius had been a lot of treason trials, yeah. which a lot of senators had been exiled or lost their lives. And he's coming in and he's throwing all the old things away and it's all going to be great. And then he falls ill. And we don't know what he falls ill with. It's all very vague. There's lots of kind of worry that he's going to die. That wonderful new emperor is going to die. And one particular guy says, oh, you know, I bet my life, if only I say to the gods, I'll take my own life, if only the emperor will recover. And one of the first things that Caligula does when he recovers is kind of say to this guy, hey, I'm pulling in your favour now. He said, you do this, <laughs> do it. But yeah, whether, it, you know, whether it's at this point, it all changes. But this is how Suetonius kind of represents it, mm. that he wakes up from this illness and he's different and he starts to kind of become almost sadistically cruel to the senate yeah all of a sudden from going from promising he's not going to persecute them anymore he persecutes them very badly he sends them to work in the mines you know he does cruel things like he invites parents to their children's ex executions mm. you know he you know he invites them the dead of night terrifying them to a meeting just so he can do a little dance for them um to kind of use a kind of and psychological terror for them. Yeah, um, he whizzes through the money that Tiberius had left in the treasury, so there's nothing left by the you know within a two years. So then he has to raise money. So then he's doing things like setting up a brothel in the palace mm. um, to pay for all these expenses, and then he's he's doing things like he's encouraging people to put them in his wills so he can inherit their money, and then he can't wait till they die. So then he's having them killed um, so that he can get to the money quicker. It's just doing you know, and even to the people, it was said that he pulled back the awnings on the amphitheaters, mm. so that when it was a boiling hot sunny day, they all got sunstroke and suffered. You know, we'd pull people out of the audience, you know, who'd um, who'd made a noise during his favourite ballet dancers' dance and have them scourged in front of his eyes, um, which is you know very very badly whipped. If you've ever seen that um, Mel Gibson film on the Life of Christ, what happens to him? That that's a scourging. It's not a nice thing. And, you know, it says, you know, he said to have said at one point, oh, he wished that all of Rome just had one neck so he could slit it at once, you know, so he can kill everybody at once. And he kind of, he laments that there's been no disasters in his reign, like Augustus lost three region, uh, three legions, rather. Oh, yeah. In Germany, Germany were massacred and there was a big um, earthquake under Tiberius and he wants a big disaster under his reign. Mm. So he's kind of just like, everything is bad. And then you get onto kind of sexual taboos, he's breaking, he's kind of, you know, at dinner parties, he's choosing his senator's wives and taking them off and having sex with them and then bringing them back to the table and then giving a full commentary on how bad they were in bed, you know, in front of them and their husbands. You know, he's just kind of ba breaking every kind of tradition that he can. Mm. He starts to think he's a god. He sets up a temple with a, a statue of himself, which he put, puts his own clothes on each day. So he changes the outfit on the representation oh, really? of the god. <laughs> yeah, chooses the outfit. And there's a point at which in which he tries to put a statue of himself in the um, temple in Jerusalem, in Judea, mm. which um, does not go down well. Um, that, just, yeah, that's a singularly very one. bad idea. Yeah, a very bad idea. And you know, he starts to believe he's Jupiter and that he's you know part of the gods and he's divine. And he dresses you know in clothes that are beyond kind of mankind and more kind of divine. Mm. So he just it's just everything you can think of that's a kind of a bad emperor, he becomes our kind of criteria, I think, of what we think of is of a worst emperor. And that kind of question of what would you do? You know, would you play along to survive or would you make a stand kind of thing? So there are a couple of instances that you've mentioned and a couple of others that I remember. One is that he makes his horse consul. Is it consul or a senator? And 
people have sort of indicated that was a, a very, you know, that was the height of madness. However, you could also say it was just a comment on how just awful and subservient and lackluster the Senate were. He doesn't, I think, yeah, I think the thing is he doesn't actually make his horse a consul. Oh. He says it, but it doesn't happen. Ah. It's one of those things that gets passed down. Right, okay. kind of, yeah, so the phrase, he says he may as well make his horse a senator, which is saying, like, exactly as you said, it's a comment on Mm. the kind of the senators and their kind of, what he thinks of them very, very little, that he may as well have a horse as a senator. And the other thing, which is the dancing and talking to the gods, I know I often wondered whether or not that was him testing people. You know, what what will you believe? Will you believe anything I tell you? If I tell you that up is down, down is up, left is right, you're just going to say yes to me. It was. It seems like he was playing games with people a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm mean, certainly, yeah, it just feel like he's toying with them, particularly the Senate. He's toying with what he can make them do. He's testing kind of what it means to be emperor. He's the first one mm. to kind of test it. And, you know, Augustus and Tiberius, to some extent, are trying to pretend they're kind of ordinary guys who just happen to have all this power. <laughs> and Caligula's one who kind of pulls back that curtain and says, I have the power, you will do what I say. So, yeah, there's a feeling that he's testing it. And there's a feeling that it's sadistic because because these senators of, you know, Caligula's family who were wiped out by Sejanus, these are the senators who voted for that to happen. Yeah, These are the people who signed those forms that led to his family's death. And at some point, he suddenly kind of wakes up to that. And, you know, suddenly all the kind of the little chicky and the, all the darlings that they've been throwing at him and all the honours, he suddenly sees it for what it is, hmm. that it's just all lies. And these are the people who killed his family. And that kind of then makes a bit more sense of why he so statistically kind of picks on the Senate, because they, they are responsible. And he sees how they puffed up Sejanus and they puffed up Tiberius, and now they're puffing up him and he realises it's all just... It's all just air. It's all just words, I, I mm. think, personally. I think that's a very good point. There actually, there is one other thing I just want to mention is that he gets criticised for incest. And it, it's worth mentioning that incest was uh, something you got criticised with all the time. Yeah, and it's not... It's, I think there's a lot of debate whether it actually happened. Um, because it gets mentioned in Suetonius, um, who's writing sort of 60 or 70 years after Caligula is dead. But Tacitus is writing a bit closer... Although we don't have his chapter on Caligula, we can kind of work out that he doesn't mention the incest because right. he talks about Caligula's sister Agrippina the Younger, who's uh, the mother of Nero. And Agrippina the Younger, in order to um, to get Nero on the throne, married her own uncle Claudius, which um, was incest, but Claudius had the law changed so that it wasn't. And that's the kind of point at which Tastus, you know, could throw in that H-bomb of, well, of course she'd slept with her brother before, so incest, you know, was easy for her. But he doesn't do it. And you kind of think, well, why doesn't he throw that line in? And it's likely because he's not, that's not a story then when Tacitus is writing. No. That, you know, the kind of incest with the sisters that comes up with Caligula wasn't a story that was being told at that time. It's a later invention. It kind of gets added in later. Yeah. As part of kind of folklore, much like kind of making his horse a senator kind of gets added in later. So you feel like the stories of Caligula actually even get exaggerated, even after he's dead. They get exaggerated some more as time goes on. One one final example, and you speak about this in the book, the seashells. This is the one that people pull out as kind of, oh, he's really crazy. Um, Caligula kind of goes on campaign, and, and I mean the whole thing's a farce from be- beginning to end. They go to Germany and he wants to fight some enemies, but there's nobody to fight. So they kind of just send some people into the forest to pretend to be the enemy and kind of let him capture them. So he has a victory, and, you know, he gets to have his own little triumph on a kind of made up kind of um, victory. But at one point he decides he's going to invade Britain and he lines up all his troops and they're ready to go across, you know, to invade Britain. And then he just orders them to pick up seashells and then declares that he's beaten Neptune, God of the sea, by doing this. And that's the kind of, that's the story that kind of nobody can kind of make sense of and go, well, surely that's mad, taking all those legions, pretending you're going to have an invasion and then deciding you've won because they've collected so many seashells and you've beaten Neptune. It's, you know, I mean, it's a really, really <laughs> odd story. Yeah. But people have, people have tried to kind of justify it and try and find a kind of an answer to it by suggesting the word for kind of seashells is quite similar to the word for kind of military huts. Right. So it's a suggestion that it's a translation error 
and actually was ordering them to pick up kind of military huts, which right. seems doesn't seem terribly plausible to me. More within the context then of a sort of military exercise, because after all, you have to yep. remember as well that the invasion of Britain occurs under the following emperor. So it's perhaps not an unfeasible thing to think about doing. No, and there's been a suggestion, or it was um, his troops, uh, Claudius had um, some troops who were refusing to go across the kind of water to invade Britain and were mutinying. And this was, you know, perhaps something similar happened to Caligula and this was his punishment for them. Right, um, okay. Which again, you know, there's no evidence that they kind of did mutiny. Um, so that seems a bit kind of tenuous. Mm. But I think it does. I mean, if you think about, the way he treats the Senate and the way he likes humiliating people yeah. and humiliating senators. This kind of fits into the same kind of thing, humiliating the troops, yeah. taking these big, strong armies and making them pick up seashells like children and build mm. collections. It, it kind of fits into that kind of like, I'm emperor, I'm God, I can do whatever I like and you know I'm better than you and I can make you pick up these seashells. So I kind of think it fits into that kind of wanting to humiliate, that kind of sadistic glee he takes and kind of, taking bits of Roman society and just making them look stupid, yeah. you know, from the Senate to the army, you know. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. How does it end for Caligula? He ends up um, getting stabbed to death um, horribly. Um, him and some what Suetonius described as inoffensive senators, who oh. um, I always feel a bit sorry for, who were just going about their general business and got in the way of this kind of stab fest. Mm. But he's not actually, he's not killed by the Senate and he's not really killed for any great noble reason. As in a lot of assassinations, you kind of look at them and behind kind of noble gestures, there's generally something petty and little going on. Oh, completely. It's kind of root cause of it. Yeah. And with Caligula, it was one of his guardsmen and he had a very high-pitched voice and Caligula used to make fun of him every day for his high-pitched voice. And when he made up the kind of watch password, he'd give him kind of passwords like Venus or something like oh, that, okay. you know, just to be feminised passwords and just kind of just kept needling at him and needling at him until the point at which he decided, you know, Cassius turns and decides to kill him. Mm. So yeah, he's not killed for any kind of noble reason. It, it's just, yeah, it's because he made fun of somebody's voice. As we finish up with Caligula, I wanted to mention about the brevity of his reign. So when he reigns for something like four years, I think it is, 37 to 41. Yeah, that's right, four years. Often people think that's because he was so bad that he was gotten rid of really quickly. The reality is that every emperor had assassination attempts made on them. There were always plots going on. These were common. These were part of the ecosystem of the empire. They were part and parcel of being an emperor. What you can't control is when one is successful, because at some point one will be successful. The fact that it happened after four years isn't a comment on how bad Caligula was in that context. Because again, these people aren't doing it for their own, or rather the altruistic nature of things. They're not doing it to free the people, though very invariably they will say they are. Very often these are bad people just killing another bad person, as it were. These are sort of interseen gang warfare. It's, it's not something that's being done to make everyone's lives better. And I think that's just worth considering when we come to Caligula on that, because he has a short reign. would have been very interesting had he had reigned a bit longer and where that had gone. But because he, he was assassinated only after four years, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a comment on how bad it was. It's just someone got to him quicker than other emperors. Yeah, Some, somebody got through, basically. Somebody had a good plan, essentially. Because, I mean, you know, when we look at Commodus, I mean, Commodus could arguably worse than in a lot of ways, and he rules for like 12 years. And you get people like later on Aurelian, who is a fantastic emperor, He's, when he's in post, he, he wins back parts of the empire that had broken away, such as Palmyra and, and Gaul, and brings them back into the empire. And he gets the title Restorer of the World. You know, he's that good. And yeah, he gets even he gets assassinated. Mm. And again, it's for a really petty reason in that he's one of his um his servants, Eros, I think is, is his name in some sources, gets another name in some other ones, killed him because he was frightened that Aurelian would be angry at him for something he had done. And we don't know what this something he had done was, but he so feared Aurelian's reaction that he forged a, a letter and gave it to the guards that stated that Aurelian wanted to have them all killed and then persuaded them to kill Aurelian first. So, you know, that's a good emperor. <laughs> and even he gets assassinated for reasons unknown, but probably quite petty when we get, if we ever get to the bottom of it, which we never will now, but. So, yeah, and uh, Domitian, Domitian, who was an emperor, who was assassinated, 
has a good line about, you know, the, the life of a prince is an unhappy one because nobody believes there is a conspiracy until he is killed. Mm. Yeah. So that's that's a position of em- being emperor. There are always going to be plots and there are plots against every single emperor, whether they're classed as good or bad. It's just whether they're successful. And Cassius, in the case of Caligula, was successful. He had a good plan and he executed it well. You know, other, other you know, conspiracies weren't well planned or executed. You name dropped our second emperor, Commodus, who most people will be familiar with from Gladiator. He's played by Joaquin yes. Phoenix. Which toned down, it toned him down considerably, I thought. It made him, you know, if you think, you know, he was bad in that film, you know nothing. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, exactly. I was, I knew something of him. Your book, or rather your, your section on him, was very illuminating. It was very interesting. I found this out. I think actually it might have been in your book. He was the second biological son to become emperor, so, so to inherit, as it were, the role. The, only the second, which is incredible when you think about how many emperors there had been at that point. Yeah. So, yeah, the first one we have is like Titus, mm. which is in um, 79 AD, succeeding Vespasian. And then we we have to wait all the way to what are we up to is it one eight something I can't think. Uh, of he reigns one eighty, yeah. Commodus comes into to power. I think it's one eighty. Yeah, yeah one, so we have to wait all the way to kind of one eighty to get another biological son to inherit the throne. It was must be very difficult because Marcus Marcus Aurelius had a very very tricky choice. What do you do? Your your you've got a biological son. You've made him consul. You can't not choose him. He's going to have to be the next emperor because if he isn't, whoever comes in, the first thing they're going to do is is get rid of him. So you don't really have yeah. a choice or, or they don't. And then there's absolute civil war, which no one really wants as their legacy. How did he achieve the role? And, you know, what was he like initially? Was he anything like Caligula in the, in the sense of being, you know, quite amiable to start with? He's not really amiable. I mean, he, the thing about Commodus is he comes at the end of this kind of dynasty, the Antonines, who were held up by Edward Gibbon in his massive book, you know, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He also said the Antonine period prior to Commodus was the golden era for Rome when it was at its height and was run the best and it's the very peak of kind of civilization. So those were the emperors which are Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus, Pius and Marcus Aurelius. They in Edward Gibbon's mind and people who read Edward Gibbon's mind were the best of all the emperors. Mm. Um, but when you look into the era, it's not a very stable era. There's all kinds of kind of barbarian incursions and yeah. plagues and, you know, all kinds of dreadful things going on. So it doesn't feel like it's a very nice era. But the difference is you actually get all those emperors, none of which are assassinated. They just, there's a kind of a smooth succession, which is quite rare for Roman yeah. emperors. Generally yeah. one gets murdered and then another one's in their place or gets assassinated or, you know, something horrible happens to them. So you have five who each succeed ex- each other with no bloodshed, and they're generally quite quite competent, but none of them are kind of next of kin kind of thing. They're choo- the, Well, how kind of story is that they're choosing like the best person to succeed them. Mm. They're all emperor by adoption from the previous mm. emperor. And there might be some you know family ties there. And then you get to Commodus, who's a natural son, and it all goes to pot. And he's, you know, he's generally uses, and he ruins the golden era for everybody, and you know, kind of takes the empire and just completely blows it to pieces, you know. So, and that's probably why you don't get another son succeeding his father for quite a long time after that either. So, <laughs> I want you to tell the story of the failed assassination attempt. It happens quite early on in his reign. I think it's one eighty two. And uh, first of all, can you can you describe it? Because it did again. It, when you described wrote it in your book, I did laugh, and I felt bad at laughing given what it, what the context of it all. Also, do you think that changed him much at all? Um, the assassination attempt. I do the assassination attempt yeah. first because it is quite funny. And he, the guy whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce, um, he has a really good. He has a perfect opportunity. He's there standing in front of Commodus with a dagger, and he's got the opportunity to stab him and kill him right then and there. But instead. He stops and he makes a little speech about exactly why he's killing him. And even like Herodian says, he takes so long making this speech that he'd wasted time. And then the palace guards, you know, spot what's happening and kind of wrestle him to the ground. You know, so much in the the way of a kind of Bond villain, you must explain exactly why. Why you must die, Mr. Bond. You know, he just spent too much time. He's going to take you on a tour. Explaining it. 
Yeah, so <laughs> I think that is the world's most useless assassination attempt because we say, you know, it's getting access to an emperor and, you know, with weaponry is not easy. No. You know, away from the guard. And he, he had the perfect time and he blows it. Um, but Cassius Dyer, the kind of the historian who, who was alive during Commodus' time, was a senator under Commodus. So it has mm. plenty of, he knew him. So we got first hand accounts here. Um, always said that, you know, there was nothing wicked about him, but he was just a bit simple. And he was a bit gullible oh, and he was easily right. led and people took advantage of that. So he he comes from the point of view that he wasn't an you know, a wicked, mad, cruel person. He was just a bit guileless, is how mm. he puts it. And people exploited that. And you know, only had first hand account of Commodus, so I think we have to kind of bear bear that in mind that, yeah. you know. He met the guy. He didn't like the guy. He slags him off plenty and tells plenty of <laughs> terrible stories about him. But the fact that he says, oh, he wasn't naturally wicked, I think yeah. holds some weight. That's an interesting interesting comment to make. Really interesting comment to make. I hadn't heard that because you'd think he'd have it very much in for him. But it's almost more pitiful that he just says he's he wasn't even good at being bad. He was just not not particularly good. He has a wonderful story, Castile, which I think is one of the best anecdotes ever. Is you know, Commodus will probably come and like to dress up as a gladiator and fight in the arena, and he would force the senators to watch this. So they were forced mm. to come all watch this, and he's doing his thing, and he you know he decapitates an ostrich, and he comes and he stands in front of the senators, and he waggles his decapitated head at them as if you know they're going to be next, and you know <laughs> big warning to them, and they get a fit of the giggles, <laughs> and they can't. And Cassius dies as he had to stuff kind of laurel leaves in his own toga in his mouth to stop himself from laughing. <laughs> So, you know, the idea that, you know, he's this terrifying, te- I mean, obviously some of it's going to be nerves as well, yeah, kind of yeah. nervous laughter, but it kind of casts new light on it that this, this man is ridiculous in a lot of ways. And, you know, other historians will say, you know, the last part of his reign, you know, was he just drunk? You know, the mm. question is raised, was he just blind drunk in the latter part of his reign? Because it's all just bonkers. And he just casts a foolish figure. I mean, yes, he's scary and people die and people are executed, but... He's laughable in a way because it's so over the top. He changed or went about trying to change the name of Rome and the calendar. He wanted to change the calendar so each month was one of his names. Yes. So, yes, he wanted every month would be named after himself. (laughs) He wanted to call Rome after himself. Mm. And I'll see if I can find it. I had a list of all the titles he gave himself. We just see how we find it. Yeah. So this is what this was what he wanted the Senate to address him as. Okay. Which is the Imperial Caesar Lucius Aulus Aurelius Commodus Augustus Pius Felix Sematico Germanico Maximus Britannicus Pacifier of the whole earth Invincible the Roman Hercules Pontifex Maximus Holder of the Tribunal Authority for the eighteenth time Imperator for the eighth time Consul for the seventh time father of his country, to consuls, praetors, tri- tribunes, and the fortunate Commodus Senate, greeting. And that was like how he was introduced in the Senate every time he kind of went wow. in, which is just, you know, it's quite something. Yeah, that's, I mean, I suppose he's got a whole branding thing going on, hasn't he? He's consistent. He wants himself addressed that way and Rome changed and the calendar changed. It's amazing they had any time to discuss anything in the Senate after they'd done that big like intro. The meetings must have been half half of the meetings taken up by him introducing himself or being introduced. You mentioned the gladiator, and actually, I imagine most people will know him from Gladiator, as I mentioned earlier. He, he fought uh, as a secutor, and if you aren't aware, they they were quite interestingly armed. They had a a scutum, a shield. They had a gladius, which was a short sword, and they had this helmet that covered most of their head i've always found that quite an interesting choice of outfit simply because he seems to have been someone who wanted everyone to see him and know who he was and yet he chose a gladiator kit which effectively hides who you are but i I always found it a bit of an odd look for someone who wanted to be so visible to everyone the gladiator thing gets the worst press but he did a lot of beast hunting as well and he actually gets some kind of credit in the sources for this. I mean, it's not our cup of tea in this day and age. It's, no. You know, it's all brutal, horrible stuff. But, you know, Herodian mentions it in the arena. He could take 100 javelins and kill 100 lions with those 100 javelins, mm. which is, you know, is quite something. Mm. You know, he decapitated ostriches with kind of, with archery, with these kind of curved arrows yeah. that kind of went and kind of swished their heads off. 
he's praised for this. He's praised for his marksmanship and his you know, and his skill. And they've that it was generally admired as being quite skillful. And it is quite skillful. It's horrible and horrific, mm. but it's skillful. Yeah. But where he falls down with the gladiator thing is because it's fighting, and because Rome is about battles and, and fighting a decent enemy. And um, you know, yeah. rather you know, Marcus Aurelius spent most of his empire career out there fighting mm. barbarian tribes who were threatening the empire. And what's his son doing? His son isn't fighting, you know, a good a good enemy. No. He's you know, he's just farting about fighting gladiators, you know, who are the lowest of the low. And that's yes. that's where the kind of line is drawn. There's some you know, there's admiration for his skill in beast hunting, but dressing up as a gladiator is beneath the dignity of a Roman Empire emperor, rather. I've mentioned this and I spoke about it on the episode I did on Rise of the Gladiators. I don't think people realise just how low gladiators were held. With both of those kind of things, the the level of skill that he was showing shows that's what he was dedicating his time to. Yeah. You know, becoming a really good gladiator, becoming, you know, a really good beast hunter. Yeah. When surely he had better things to be doing, like running the empire, for instance. He doesn't seem like he's interested in the institutions of the state other than threatening them with heads of large birds, which is, you know, not really the best way of doing business. How does it come to the end then for for him how does it all end it's it i mean it takes a long time to get there it takes 12 years and there's, there's all kinds of ups and downs in the middle in the as we're saying that he's concentrating being gladiator and fighting and being a good beast hunter and he hands over kind of power to right hand men first one is perennius who kind of takes over the running of everything and then gets too big for the boots and people actually have to go to Calig- to a Commodus rather to tell him this is happening Right. And tell him that Perennius is taking too much power. Perennius is going to make his sons his heirs, and you know he's going to lose the role. They actually have to physically go and tell him for him to to notice this. And then Perennius gets executed, and his sons get executed. And then he does exactly the same thing again with a guy called Cleander, who's a freedman, who again gets too big for his boots and starts selling consulships to anybody, right? You know whether they be free or ex-slave, which is a big big no-no. Rome being very class-based society. Mm. And he does exactly the same thing again. And again, people have to come to him to tell him, this is happening. Cleander's got too big for his boots. He's threatening you. You know, you could be on the way out. I think that's quite interesting in that he's obviously not very good at choosing right-hand men. No, no. You know, they're not trustworthy. And he's just not paying attention. He's just let, letting it, letting this kind of thing happen. And um, I was discussing this with a friend of mine, S.J. Turner, who's a, a historical fiction writer, writes a lot of very good Roman books and wrote one on Commodus did a Damned Emperor series. Mm. We did uh, Caligula, Commodus and Car- Caracalla and Domitian. And he told me his theory was that Commodus was bipolar, oh. which I thought was really, really interesting because that would explain these periods where he's not noticing what's going on mm. because he's hiding in some villa and Cleander's taking power and he's not noticing because he's maybe in a depressive state and shut himself away. Yeah. And then Grandio's behaviour maybe goes with that, that kind of manic energy of you know naming the months all after yourself you know i think there's some maybe something there i mean you can never diagnose anyone from 2000 years ago but i think there's pro- there's something there that's you know could could be interesting it's a very interesting idea to consider historical characters within the framework of sort of mental health and you're right it is incredibly difficult to the point of nine impossible to actually diagnose them well, knowing what we do now about how people work how they exist on spectrums and things like that. There's no reason why we can't explore that that idea with historical characters. So, it, yeah, I think it is a very interesting thing to try and consider. Again, though, with the caveat that you can only do so much. Yeah, and I think you can also just say Commodus is also the first emperor who's actually born to the purple, in that he was born when his father was already emperor. Oh, yeah. And you have to say, well, that that's going to give you ideas of grandeur, grandeur isn't yeah. it, from the beginning? So it could just be. He was born to this world in which he is told he's going to be emperor, he's going to rule the world, and you know that just goes to his head, kind of thing, as it might do to many of us. You know, given given unlimited power, we'd all name a month after ourselves, surely. Well, I, I don't. I always find it funny when people talk about people in, shall we say, the entertainment industry, and they say, "Do you believe how so and so acts?" If you keep telling people they're the most important thing on the planet, that everything they do is amazing, and they start going through a, a part of their life where they can tell anyone what they want to do. Don't look at me in the eyes. I need this in my dressing room. I'm not trying to compare any entertainment person, shall we say, with Commodus, 
what I'm saying is there's a similar line of behavior where people will behave until they're checked. And in certain industries, people don't get checked and they want to be treated in such a way that is beyond the merit of anyone else on the planet, pretty much. Yeah. And you can sort of say emperors are so high up that they are beyond the merit of anybody else. So they're in a different plane, they're in a different existence to everybody else, and they are treated in a very different way. Mm. And not everybody has the strength of character to kind of resist that no. and not believe your own press kind of thing. So I'm not really surprised. I mean, the end comes from Commodus mm. after many assassination attempts. I mean, just summing up his kind of relationship with the Senate, in that he um, has gold statue of himself as an archer put in front of the Senate House where he's aiming his bow at the Senate House. Um, <laughs> which I think kind of sums up... How, yeah, he was, he was nothing. He was not really subtle. But in the end, he's poisoned. It's, it's a kind of conspiracy of a Praetorian prefect with his mistress, and they poison his beef, which he then throws up, and they have a panic. So they send in a wrestler called Narcissus, who strangles him in his bath, and that's the kind of end of Commodus. So, again, it's kind of access again. You need the people who yeah. are closest to yeah. him to be in these plots. If you, you, know, you, need, you need the guard involved, because they're going to be one standing next to him. Yeah. And if you haven't got him them involved, then you're not going to get near you're not going to get near an emperor to assassinate them, basically. Oh, completely. We'll come then to our last emperor. Our final emperor is a little more complex because the political and social landscape he found himself in was very different from the other two. In the 4th century, you've got the Western and the Eastern Roman emperor. Though this emperor predated the formal split, it was still pretty much the case in his time. In fact, it was his father who had two emperors in place, one at Constantinople in the East, and in his case, in Milan, in the West, that's where the imperial court was at this time. There was also the issue of religion. By this point, Christianity was the religion of the empire, but there was tension between two factions within it, and this was essentially another spinning plate to deal with. The final emperor is and wasn't an emperor, and this was part due to his age, but even as an adult, he was at best a sort of token emperor with no real power. There was also a power-sharing structure or sort of in place at this time. It's, it's all a bit complicated. Anyway, you've probably guessed this one. His name was Valentinian II, and he ruled in the late 4th century. So LJ, I gave a very basic and somewhat muddled overview of where we are with Valentinian II. Perhaps a major point to consider here is that there was that different power structure in place with the ruler in the East and in the West. But even then, there was a senior ruler and a junior one. Have I got that right? Yeah, you'd have like a, a an Augustus and a Caesar, um, who the kind of two, which is what um, Diocletian came up with the kind of junior and senior partner, and that kind of been the pattern going back comes centuries, maybe not formalized. No, um, but Valentinian's father, Valentinian one, <laughs> he was um, <laughs> he was sharing power with um, Valens, who at that point he was out in the east, so there was a kind of power sharing going on there, and Valentinian one had a son called Gratian who was 16 at the time, so he's not terribly old either, who was very much thought that he would be the successor to his father. And Valentinian I died very suddenly whilst out on campaign. Not on campaign, didn't die no. in a battle or anything anything that kind of heroic. He was sorting out a peace treaty with the with the tribe he'd been fighting, and they upset him. They, they were a bit... <laughs> I shouldn't laugh again. <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> laugh, but yeah. I shouldn't laugh. No, I shouldn't laugh. It's just something that he took offence to. And he got really, really cross. And he evidently had a terrible temper anyway. Yeah. And he got so cross that he had what sounds like a stroke and just dropped dead. And they're out on out campaign at that time. And all these officials standing around the kind of dead body of Valentinian I have, have a kind of collective panic because they're surrounded by soldiers, by legions. Mm. In the previous century, we'd had like a third century crisis where the legions had made the emperors. And we'd had... You know, we had one every sort of 1.83 years, I mm. think I worked it out. It was, you know, it'd been a rapid turnover of, of emperor. So they were terrified that they were going to just choose an emperor from within the ranks. And there they are stuck with a load of soldiers who, you know, first thing they're going to do is get rid of the officials from the previous administration. Mm. So they decide they need to quickly name an emperor, quick, as fast as they can. And they name Valentinian II rather than Gratian. There's two ways you can look at this. You can look at this is because they thought they'd have more control over a kind of a younger child because Valentin II mm. is only four years old versus <laughs> Gratian's aged 16. Or you can look at it that they had a map and a ruler and they worked out that Gratian was out campaigning several hundred further miles away than Valentin II right. was being a child. And they could get Valentin II there quicker to show that the 
show to the army, look, we've got an emperor, here he is, way. Mm. So, so that's how he ends up becoming emperor. And Gratian doesn't have much choice but to kind of accept it. And he ends up as a kind of co-ruler. And we later yeah. get a, another Eastern emperor called Theodosius, who becomes quite famous mm. and gets the epitaph, the great, because he does great things, which Valentinian II doesn't no. really at all. No, doesn't do. Well, I won't give it away too much, but let's just say his resume of achievements is somewhat lacking. Yeah. I mean, his signature is on edicts and things like that because all the, the emperors that are ruling, you know, are putting their names to things. But how much mm. he's involved in this, you know, is anyone's guess. <laughs> So you've got this four-year-old, presumably he's sort of not yet emperor, he's this co-ruler under Gratian. Again, just so everyone is, uh, understands, this is the Western Empire. It's ruled largely out of Milan. Well, that's where the imperial court is at this time. And Gratian is not doing so well. I understand that he has uh, the fantastically named Maximus who decides to lead a rebellion against him. And uh, yeah, how does that go? How does that go? Yeah, it doesn't go well. Yeah, so... Valentin II, he's got a couple of advisors for his kind of regency. There's a guy called Probus who's mentioned, who's his advisor, and also his mother, Justinian, mm. who is quite powerful. But Gratian gets into this war with Maximus and, and is killed. And then Maximus mm. turns to Valentinian II and comes to take over. And he doesn't actually – they don't actually fight, but it, the kind of the line is that kind of Valentinian sees he can't really do anything. Yeah. He's, and just accepts that he will rule with with Maximus, and they will be emperor. And then he and his mother just do a flip and run away, basically. So they agree to rule as co-emperors with kind of Maximus, who's killed his brother. Mm. And then they just run away to Theodosius and ask for help. And Theodosius comes back and wipes out Maximus and takes back what's rightfully theirs. And that's that's the kind of end of that that rule. But it kind of sets a kind of precedent that he, he runs away and asks for help rather than fight. Yeah, by this point he's I think he's twenty, isn't he? So just to just to recap, Maximus has been defeated. Theodosius has made him sort of basically second in command. He's gone back to Constantinople and left and left Valentinian the Second in the West. He doesn't have his mother anymore, who was a big influence. There is still this individual who I hadn't previously mentioned and should have done, Ambrose. The story of Ambrose is St. Ambrose, for anyone who might recognise him being termed that. He never wanted to be Bishop of Milan. He was made Bishop of, Bala of Milan, which then meant that he had to be baptised. And he becomes this incredibly important political figure who often checks against Justina, the, the Empress at the time. He's a, he's a difficult challenge for anyone to have to deal with. Valentinian II is 20, and you think now he's got options. and and yeah, what what happens then? Well, there's this guy called Arbogast, who's one of um, Theodosian's generals, who comes to call, and he just looks more empery than Valentine <laughs> II does, basically. And he wins around the, all the troops that are there, and he makes himself very popular with everybody. And he starts to step on the toes of Valentine II, and he starts to make decisions that are not his to make. Mm. And Valentine II does, just doesn't seem to know how to deal with it. Yeah. Because he's a very strong character, Arbogast, and I'm very, very sure of himself. And Valentinian II clearly isn't very sure of himself at all. And he, you know, he sends him a note dismissing him from court. He doesn't tell him outright. He sends him, hands him a note, <laughs> which he just tears to pieces, obviously, and says, "I'm not going to do that." Mm. And then he, uh, Valentinian II, then appeals again to Theodosius for help from this, you know, this person who's infiltrated his court. And then, the, you know, a few weeks later. Theodosius receives information that um, Valentine II is now dead. And there's a big question mark over how he died. Mm. Some people say he was strangled by Abagast and others say he committed suicide. But he's 21 years old and that's the end of him, basically. He's weak, I think, isn't he? I think is what comes across yeah. as him. I, I mean, I think when he's four years old, you know, that's allowable. But mm. at 20, 21, I mean, come on, Augustus raised an army at 19. He tells us that, you know, frequently in his writings. You know, he's just, just not up to the job. He's not strong enough. And the people around him recognise he's not strong enough because they go over to Arbogast, who's, you know, who's the far better candidate, the far stronger candidate. He's a, a good contrast to the previous two. One of the reasons that I chose him 
was because where you've got Caligula and Commodus, you've got these very front foot characters whose, I suppose, ultimate slide to their own disasters is, is in their own marrow. With Valentinian II, he's completely passive. And again, with my devil's advocate hat on and feeling sorry for the guy, it seems like someone who was just given a job that they never, ever wanted. And that's what happens when you put someone like that in that role. Imagine you're an actor and imagine there's a play or a Netflix series or something and you've got one about Caligula. Well, everyone wants to be Caligula. Caligula is going to have the best lines. And now there's going to be one made about Commodus. Well, everyone will want to be Commodus. And then when you get to Valentin in the second, it's no one wants to be Valentin in the second. Everyone would wants to be uh, Justinia. They want to be uh, Ambrose. They want to be Arbogast. They want to be Theodosius. They, they want to be all of these other characters. It's almost this gap in the middle of everything. To that extent, I feel, I feel sorry for him. But it's just a good exploration, I think, of what can make a bad emperor. Well, it isn't necessarily having the wrong type of skills. It can just be not having skills. Yeah, and I have, I have a few examples of that yeah, in the book of people who get the job mm. and then find when they get there, they're just not up for it. <laughs> you know, they're just not up to it. And, yeah. I mean, I think that Valentini II is living in a very different world to Caligula and Commodus because he's yes. living in a world where yes. really anybody can be emperor now. Mm. All you need is a bit of army support and people who would never be able to be emperor, say, back in Caligula's time, you know, free, you know the children of slaves, you know, or freedmen. If they've got an army behind them, they can become emperor. Yeah. Anybody can. So he's in a slightly different world to Caligula. And I think that shows that, you know, if somebody looks like a more likely candidate, they have a good chance of being emperor. It doesn't matter about their bloodline, et cetera, or, you know, whether they're mm. born to the post or, you know, whether their father was an emperor, you know, that that's out the window by this point. It's difficult because if you did come up with some sort of rubric by which you can judge or assess emperors, it's out of date pretty quickly. It'd be interesting to think about those emperors, the, you know, Julian Claudius, would they have been any good in this era when they got vandals and goths and whoever coming at them? Mm. You know, it's, yeah. it's difficult to wear out. It's such a huge period of time. You know, it's the equivalent of looking in British history at Queen Elizabeth I versus Margaret Thatcher. It's that length yeah. of time. Yeah. Things are very different, you know. Mm. But it is a testament to your book that you, you take all that on. I would strongly recommend it if you're someone who's interested in this and I think the other thing which you haven't spoken a great deal about, which I think would, if we had longer, take up more time, is you do talk about the sources and how the sources are really important in what we understand and how we understand it. And they do frame much of what we know about these emperors. I think we can got the time, though, if we, if we can, to pick up some questions, because prior to this episode, I asked on, on social media a few places, got any questions? We, we've got a good, good few questions. I've selected a few of them. Sorry if your question's not on here. Didn't get a chance to deal with all of them. And thank you very much to the nice person who said very, something very nice about RJ Trafford. That was very nice of you. You said you didn't have any questions. Nice. I just needed to tell you that, that this person loved you. So there we go. That's it. <laughs> Which I love. Thank you. I love you too. <laughs> to start with then, how can we evidence if a reign was truly bad? I think that comes into the, the point on sources. So I suppose, how do we weigh up the sources? Yes, the problem we have with our sources, our written sources, certainly, they're all written from one class and they're all written by senators or equestrians, mm. which are the two elite classes. And they're the people who tend to get bumped off by emperors. So any any reign in which a number of senators get bumped off is generally going to be written about very badly. But I think we do have other sources. We do have coins. We do have inscriptions. We do have buildings, you know. So there is other evidence we can weigh it against. And, for example, Commodus. Whereas we're saying with Caligulus, it all feels a bit dubious and a bit exaggerated. Mm. With Commodus, you know, there is the coin evidence that he's calling himself Hercules. There yeah. is the coin, you know, there is the evidence he's renaming the mumps. There yeah. is the evidence he's given himself his big long title. So you kind of weigh weigh up um, evidence using other other bits of evidence apart from just written sources. There's other bits of evidence, and I think things. Things like, you know, with Nero, Nero was clearly more popular with the people than he ever was with the Senate because you keep getting yeah. these people claiming to be Nero years after he died. He, he truly was the Elvis of his day. He was the Elvis of his day, yes. Even, you know, when it's clear, I think one pops up in Titus's reign where he, you know, <laughs> he'd be well and truly dead by then. But So there's little bits of evidence that pop up that give you the other side of it. 
So you, th- there's ways of weighing it up. The next one is how can we tell in the often biased histories where uh, unjustified revolts against an emperor cause problems as compared to when an emperor causes problems which triggered justified revolts? So I suppose it's whether or not a bad outcome is just something that's foisted on an emperor or something that they've instigated. Um, I think a lot of the sources are quite honest. I mean, Claudius, who generally gets it, we tend to think of as a good emperor. It'll mention at the time that he got pelted with bread because he'd screwed up the grain supply and things like that. You know, Augustus gets pelted with, um, I think it's sods of sods of earth because he hasn't sorted out the veterans' land mm. properly. So they're, they're generally quite truthful about it if there's a you know if there's a revolt. It, it doesn't come out of nowhere. They generally say no. what's upset the Roman mob. You know, so I'm trying to think of one where people just revolted just for no reason. There's always a reason given. I don't mm. think any emperor gets off scot-free and said, oh, they just revolted for no reason. It wasn't my fault. I think <laughs> I think the closest is actually, or the one that immediately pops to mind is the one that almost happened to Caligula, where he decides that he's going to put his own statue in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, yeah. in the temple there. That's the sort of thing that will cause an absolute riot. I mean, if anyone could come up with and a revolt that, that of which no reason was given and there was no good cause and it didn't lay at the feet of an emperor. Maybe it was the emperor's right-hand man who screwed it up, like Cleander yeah. or something like that. But again, the emperor should have known about that. But I can't think off the top of my head about a mob writing for no reason that wasn't blamed on the emperor. Well, if, you, if anyone's listened to this and they've got a, a one that's come to mind where you have got a, a revolt or riot or something bad happens and it's absolutely not the fault of the emperor or someone involved, uh, then please send it in. Let let me know. There's probably a few that I've I've missed, and I'll come off this episode and go. Oh, I should have mentioned that. This is a, a a bit of a longer question, but all, also a very good one. I read somewhere that emperors we are told that who were the worst were assassinated. I.e., none of them died in their sleep. This suggests that at least part of their bad reputation in the ancient sources was due to propaganda from their murderers justifying the killing. How far does LJ think that might be true? And what does that propaganda mean for our efforts to get a truer assessment of emperors like Nero and Caligula? I think it's very true because what you need to be considered a good emperor is a successor to big you up. Yeah. And if you don't have a successor to big you up, then they're going to damn you. There's a good example of this in the, in the case of Vitellius, who's one of, the, one of the emperors in the year of the four emperors. And he's not assassinated, but you know he's horribly killed. And Vespasian... Um, comes in to be emperor and he rules for a good 10 years afterwards and the dynasty keeps going for like 20 years. So they've got a long time to spin exactly why Vitellius mm. had to die so horribly and they've got a long time to spin, oh yeah, well he was terrible emperor because he did this, this and this and he was an awful person and he was cruel and he was this because it, you don't want to be the guy who murdered their way to power. You want to be the good guy. You're the, you're the good guy that saved Rome. You're not the good guy, you know, you're not yeah. the bad guy that killed the guy in charge. So yeah, I think it, I think it plays a huge a huge part in what happens to your reputation. Thank you very much for the questions. Um, apologies again, we couldn't get to more of them. Is there anything coming as we come to the end, LJ, that you want to talk about or mention anything we've missed? Yeah, I was just wondering whether to mention Trajan okay. in, in connection with assassination, because I thought that's quite an interesting one, because Trajan takes over from Nerva, who isn't assassinated, but the Praetorian Guard do storm the palace and hold like a knife to his throat. Oh. After which he then names Trajan as his heir. There's always a big thing about whether they were they were in on it, and and that's that, I think that's quite quite an interesting one because Pliny does a little speech, a little panegyric about Trajan, and and says, "Oh, the guard did it for for you because they knew that Nerva wasn't a good emperor, and they knew they had to force your hand so that you would stand up and be emperor <laughs> and sort all this out." So that's kind of that's kind of an assassination that didn't happen, but could have happened. Mm. And the justification that has been put in place is, oh, the guard, they knew they needed a better emperor. So that was just on my mind, because I was just thinking that's an assassination that doesn't happen. And a good emperor does come in place and tries to spin it mm. as, a, as a good thing. What am I working on now? I'm working on, I did a book on sex and sexuality in ancient Rome. So now I'm doing sex and sexuality in ancient Greece, which Ooh. is a very interesting and controversial. There's nothing. And they, you can't find a, anything. They just, there's nothing on pots. There's just no reference at all. It must be really difficult trying to find any source material. <laughs> I've just I've just got piles of books surrounding me with all very <laughs> pictures on the front and titles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of those Greek parts, they do tell a story. 
They don't off, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I just to mention again, though, you did the sex and sexuality in ancient Rome and you were on this podcast. So if people, if your ears prick up, pun intended, on that, then you can always go back through the back catalogue and have a listen to that because we have a great fun talking about things, as you might imagine. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a very fun one to do. And I think what, hopefully when your book's out for the ancient Greek, uh, sex, and sexu- sex and Sexuality in Ancient Greece, you'll come on the podcast and we can talk about that. Yeah. And I'll have to put a an 18 certificate on, I think, on the, the episode. Yeah, I have to see how far we can push it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we pushed it quite far last time. But <laughs> anyway, look, I just want to say I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. If you If people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Uh, probably on Twitter's best. I'm just at Trafford LJ, or I'm on Facebook somewhere as well. So that's probably that's probably the easiest way. If you follow me, you'll you'll find LJ. I'm sure because I often retweet her stuff. Well, until next time, thanks again. Thanks for everyone for listening. If you're still with us, and thanks LJ, that was great. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yes, yeah, been fun. It's been fun. Until next time, uh, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>